Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. I think it's important for us to understand that when we talk about revival, revival is more than saying your neighbor's saved. It's more than saying your marriage restored. It's more than saying your cancer healed, though all of those things are wonderful and all of those things happen during revival. But let me just encourage you with this, and this is a concern that's in my heart. It doesn't matter what happens around us if nothing happens in us. The last thing God wants is for us to watch and to spectate and, heaven forbid, evaluate either the quality of the service or a speaker or or a, you know, all the things that we could. Revival changes the way you and I walk with God. That means it should change the way we live. It should change the way we talk. It literally should rearrange a person's life. Uh, If God is moving in a place, and he's moving here for sure, then something about that should cause us in the awareness of his moving, not to have business as usual, but to say, God, move in me. Don't just change people's lives around me. Change my life. Work in me. My question then tonight is, are you in revival yet? We make a big mistake if we think that because God is working around us, that's all that's necessary. It's essential that God does something in us, and the greater the work we're seeing around us, then we can automatically assume the greater the work God wants to do in us. He wants to do a work in you. Because what happens when you and I experience his power in an extraordinary way, what happens is it fundamentally transforms us. In the Welsh Revival, which was in the early 1900s, which was started really by a group of students praying, led by a young man named Evan Roberts, and as they prayed, they were praying that God would send revival upon Wales, a a large part of England. And as they prayed, what happened is God began to move in their midst, and then they would go out and hold meetings in other places, and the lives of people that you wouldn't normally think would be saved were instantly broken in the presence of the Lord and completely transformed. So that what happened is it moved out of the church into the communities in Wales so that by the time the revival was at its height, Every pub in Wales except one was shut down. It changed the way people lived. It changed what they did with their spare time. In fact, it changed the way people talked so much so that the coal mines were shut down because the, the mules had been trained to work in response to commands that were profanity. And when the miners got saved, they no longer used profanity, and the mules couldn't understand them. 
it changes the way you live. So we have to be careful about evaluating this season in the life of the church. I mean, I see the beginning of revival and I celebrate that, but we don't want to confuse the beginning of revival with the end of revival. We don't want to confuse a move of God in the church with something that ultimately transforms society. That's what revival does. And on a personal level, the issue really is, what effect is this move of God having on you? Really, that is, that's a critical question. Has it affected you? The reason why I say this is because I talk to a lot of people, and people are, are by and large, excited I find it curious when people aren't. I'm, I'm like, hmm. You know, there's, some people are still in the evaluation stage, which, I mean, you know, we've been, we've been doing this now 15 months. That's a long time to be evaluating if it's real. Um, but I'm, I'm concerned that, that people are viewing it as a spectator, as something God is doing in the church separate from anything he might be doing in their life, and that's a dangerous place to be. I want to ask you, how has this affected you? How has it changed how you pray? How has it changed how you walk with God? Has it caused you to live differently? To lean into things, the things of God like never before? Has it caused you to become bold? in your willingness to talk to people about Jesus and to pray for people. I mean, one of the things that's very interesting, when revival strikes, here's how you know the, the depth and the reality of it. It changes the people. I mean, you can read, you can read revivals like Jonathan Edwards, The Great Awakening, uh, The First Great Awakening, other revivals, and the effect that it had on the people, not only in the church, but the people in the communities. One of the revivals or, or revivalists that I've enjoyed reading about, and I've mentioned her before, is, is Mariah Woodworth Edder, and she was preaching in a town outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. The Cincinnati Inquirer sent reporters to write about it, and what happened, this is one description, the spirit of conviction fell upon the town and the surrounding country. Sinners fell as dead men. You say, what's that? They fell. They were prostrate. They were laying on the ground. Sometimes for hours. Sometimes for days. Now that's hard to imagine, but I mean, the accounts are so numerous of that and verified by whether it's the uh, St. Louis papers, whether it's the, the Cincinnati papers, other papers that wrote about it. It goes on to say, others cried for mercy. One night the power of God fell so so that the solemnity of the judgment seemed to rest upon the people. In other words, the people were, were in a moment so overwhelmed by the, by the awesome holiness of God and their own unholiness that it caused them to cry out for mercy. I mean, that, that we understand happens in the Bible when, when people really come in contact with the presence of God and, and the power of God, and the majesty of God, and the reality of God, the, the, the correct response is one of crying out for mercy. 
I mean, you see that with Peter in, in Luke chapter 11. You have the story of, of Peter's call, and, and he and, and you know Andrew were out fishing all night, and they come in to the shore in the morning. They're cleaning their nets. Jesus is teaching people, and Jesus uh, asks them if he can get in their boat and have them push out from the shore a little bit because of the press of the crowd. And he gets done teaching, and when he gets done teaching, he says to Peter and Andrew, he says, uh, go on out into the lake and drop your nets. And Peter says, we have fished all night and haven't caught a thing, and, and as if to say, Jesus, you may not know anything about fishing, but you can't catch fish during the day. But then he says, because you say so, I'll do it. And they go out there, they let the nets down, and all of a sudden, they have this miraculous catch of fish, and the nets are beginning to break, and Peter is watching this, and what's his response to that in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8? But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a wicked man, I'm a, I'm a sinful man. In other words, in the, in the NLT, oh Lord, please leave me, I'm too much of a sinner to be near you. See, when you see the power of God and the expression of his power, immediately it exposes the sinfulness resident in our own lives. Isaiah had a similar experience. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, here's this godly prophet and he sees the Lord and he's high and lifted up. He has this vision of Jesus in his pre-incarnate glory and he's high and lifted up and his glory fills the temple and he's surrounded by seraphim, six-winged angelic beings that all they do is they cry out in antiphonal voice, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. When he sees it, what does he do? He doesn't say, wow, this is really cool. I'm glad I got to see this. Exposed to the presence of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the exaltedness of God, he cries out, Woe is me. I'm undone. That, that word, we need that expression, woe is me. I'm damned. I'm ruined, eternally ruined. He says, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We're all profane, instantly aware of his own sinfulness, instantly crying out for mercy. And in that moment, one of the angels goes over and takes a coal off the altar and he touches it to his lips and purifies his speech. He's never the same again. That's what revival does. We have an encounter with God that really changes us at the core of our being because we've met God and we've seen God and we know God in a way we never knew him before. Revival changes hearts, our hearts, and, and the hearts of those outside the church who are exposed to his presence just because his presence has shown up even in a place with power. The account of the Edda revival continues with this. The displays of the power of God continued to increase during the meetings, which lasted five weeks. The power of the Lord, like the wind, swept all over the city, up one street, down another, sweeping through the places of business, the workshops, saloons, and dives, arresting sinners of all classes. 
Men, women, and children were struck down in their homes, in their places of business, on the highways, and lay as dead. They had wonderful visions and rose converted, giving glory to God. So they went out as a sinner. They came up as a saint. I mean, they had encounters with God. It goes on and says this. When they told what they had seen, their faces shone like angels. The fear of God fell upon the city. The police said they never saw such a change and that they had nothing to do. That's a sign of revival. When the police no longer have to police. When the hearts of people are so transformed that the idea of committing crime is something they're just not, they're not willing to do. You say, that, that sounds impossible. Nothing is impossible for God. And this kind of pattern has happened repeatedly in different societies. So it, it can happen here. They said they made no arrests and that the power of God seemed to preserve the city. There was no fighting, no swearing on the streets. The people moved softly, and there seemed to be a spirit of love and kindness among all classes as if they felt they were in the presence of God. That's revival. Revival is, is when the presence of God so permeates a place, not just a church, but a town, a city, a county, that it changes the people in that place. Now, let me give you just a, a principle, because uh, to, to think this through personally, you can discern the amount of God's glory you have seen by the transformation that's happened in your heart. So your sensitivity, my sensitivity to the glory of God is, is directly demonstrated by what happens in our heart. Man, I, I'm just saying God is moving, and again, we're on the front end, not the back end, and so... I'm telling you, this is where this is going. You're never going to have an awakening. You're never going to have a, a revival without some of these things taking place. And, and a part of it is this awesome reverence for the holiness of God. Revival not only reveals the power of God, but it reveals the holiness of God. The two go together. So his power and his holiness, because who he is and what he does are inseparably linked. So as we get ready to wrap this up, we're going to spend some time in the presence of the Lord. I just want to give you a few scriptures to consider. The first one, 1 Chronicles 16, 20, 29, give the Lord the glory to his name, bring an offering, come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Before God is anything else, he's holy. God's holiness means he's utterly unique. He's utterly separate. He's utterly different. He's not like anything. This is why in the Ten Commandments, don't make any graven images because I'm not like anything you can imagine. I'm not like anything you've seen. I'm completely different. Separated from sin, devoted to his glory. And notice, would you, that holiness and beauty go together. Beauty has its roots in holiness because holiness in its purest form is the beauty of God made manifest to us. We come first and foremost, we become aware of his holiness as God is in a place, as God is moving. 
So praise God for his power, but power and holiness have to go together. If, if you have power and you don't have holiness that leads to purity, you're going to limp. Because we stand on the legs of power and the legs of purity. And as power increases, God wants our purity to increase. Which means some things that were potentially tolerated or he hadn't put his finger on in your life, he begins to say, that's got to go. If you're going to see me do what I want to do in your life and, and you want to be a part of what I'm doing and you want me to profoundly transform you, then you're going to need to make some adjustments. We come to him as a God first and foremost of holiness. I mean, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 11, verse 2. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. That's what that means. God, you're holy. Before you're anything else, you are holy. You are You are completely other than anything we could ever imagine, completely unique, completely beautiful. You're holy. And what he wants us to do is to have an understanding of his holiness that we might be like him in our holiness, in our separateness, in our other uniqueness. Listen to this in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. A lot, of, a lot of holy in that verse, right? And you get the idea, be holy. You say, well, you know, John, if, 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 if we're all a bunch of holy rollers, then nobody's going to want anything to do with us. That's not true. The most holy person who ever walked the face of the earth was called what? A friend of sinners. There's something about holiness that's attractive to people who need it, who don't have it. It's not very attractive to the self-religious and the self-righteous. They don't want much to do with it. But it's very attractive to people when you're walking in, not a man-made holiness, because when we go into man-made holiness, then that, that is nasty. But Jesus was just beautiful in holiness, and everybody wanted to be around him. Hebrews 12, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. Listen, you got to work at it. So it's not God may, may put you down and bring you up and you'll be different, but that won't ever negate the necessity to guard our, our heart, to guard our life, and to work at living a holy life. In other words, what, what's that have to do with? Well, it just, you know, when it comes to the Spirit of God working in us, and He's the one who does the work of sanctification in our life, and, and holiness is, is the means to sanctification in our life. It's how, God, it's how God works that into our life. It's what God wants to do, but we've got to work at it. We've got to, we've got to let Him work in us, and then we've got to be sensitive. And so we don't want to quench the Spirit. That is, when we feel the Lord moving in a place and the Spirit of God calling us somebody, we don't want to say no. And then we also don't want to grieve the Spirit by allowing things in our life 
that are displeasing to him. So we got to work at it. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Listen, if you don't grow in holiness, if we don't grow in holiness, we're going to miss what God wants to do. Not just in our life, but in the church and in the community. He wants us to be holy. So a great place to start is to say what the psalmist said in Psalm 139. He says this, and we'll close with this. Search me, O God. I think a great thing to do tonight is to say, Lord, I'm just asking you to shine the spotlight of your Holy Spirit on my heart right now. You know me better than I know myself. This is at the end of a great, great psalm that says, before I even put words together in my mouth. You see my words from afar. You know them full well. You saw me when I was born. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Before I ever lived a day, you'd counted and numbered them. God, God knows more about us than we would ever even want to know. And so the psalmist is saying, you know me that well. So God, search me. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. One, I think it's King James, see if there be any wicked way in me. Ask God tonight, God, if there's anything that I'm doing, if there's anything I'm saying, if there's anything I'm thinking, if there's anything I'm planning that offends you, then God, shine your spotlight on it. Show me and, and give me the will and resolve and the power from your spirit to, to bring meaningful change into my life and lead me along the path of everlasting 